0: Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of Primary Care Anywhere, the podcast brought to you by the University of Utah Internal Medicine Program. My name is Patrick Campbell, and I'm an in internal medicine PGY1 at the University of Utah. In this episode, we will be discussing monoclonal gammopathy of unknown significance, where we will try to demystify a condition increasingly discovered by many internists on working up many common conditions. I will discuss a case and then we will move on to discussing definitions, risk factors, diagnosis, and treatment with the hope of making you more comfortable when you encounter this common but confusing disease. So, on to our case. We have a 68-year-old gentleman with knee osteoarthritis, otherwise completely healthy, who recently underwent TKA on routine perioperative labs. He was found to have hypercalcemia, 10.6, a slightly elevated ESR, and otherwise a normal CBC and creatinine. An intrepid ortho intern who had a secret love of medicine but also for drilling into bones remembered from med school this constellation being associated with multiple myeloma and decided to order an SPEP and IFE. These studies revealed a monoclonal spike in the gamma fraction on the SPEP of 2.1 grams per deciliter, and a serum immunofixation electrophoresis revealed this corresponded to an IgG paraprotein. This patient came to my primary care clinic one month later. Upon talking to him, I discovered he had been taking a lot of Tums because they seemed to help the stomach pain he was having from frequent ibuprofen use, given his knee pain. He stopped taking both after the surgery and was currently feeling well. On review of systems, he had no fatigue, bone pain, shortness of breath, paresthesias, numbness, nosebleeds, foamy urine, or Raynaud's phenomenon, no family history of hematologic disorders or chemical exposures that he knew of. On exam, he had no conjunctival pallor, no murmurs, no weakness or neurologic deficits discovered anywhere, no lymphadenopathy, no organomegaly, no JVD or spinal tenderness, and a ben- Nine exam other than a slightly swollen knee from his TKA. I repeated labs, and his calcium and ESR levels had now normalized. So what do I tell this patient, and what do I do with him? To help us figure this out, I will now turn it over to my colleague Alec Hansen to discuss definitions and risk factors of
1: MGUS. Now that we've had an introduction and we've heard a clinical vignette, let's talk about the definition of what exactly is MGUS, and what risk factors are associated with developing it. Monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, or MGUS, is part of a family of disorders related to plasma cell proliferation. It is the most common and least serious plasma cell proliferative disorder. MGUS differs from other more serious plasma cell disorders, such as multiple myeloma, light chain amyloidosis, or Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia, by its lack of clinical symptoms and characteristic involvement of less than 10% of the bone marrow. Plasma cells are mature B lymphocytes that produce antibodies, also called immunoglobulins. These immunoglobulins can be characterized into different classes. Some common examples would be IgA, IgG, IgE, or IgM. In MGUS, The M-protein, or light chain fragments, are produced by post-germinal center clonal plasma cells. MGUS can be categorized into three subtypes based on what type of immunoglobulin it produces and what kind of hematologic malignancy it carries the greatest future risk of progressing to. These three subtypes are non-IgM MGUS, IgM MGUS, and light chain MGUS. In non-IgM MGUS, the plasma cell produces either IgA or IgG, and rarely IgD or IgE, and this type of MGUS is most likely to progress to multiple myeloma. In IgM MGUS, the plasma cell produces IgM, and this condition is more likely to progress to Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia, or rarely IgM multiple myeloma. And in light chain MGUS, the plasma cell secretes free light chains, and this condition is most likely to contribute to light chain multiple myeloma. All right, now that we know a little bit more about MGUS, let's talk about what are the risk factors for developing it. First, we can talk about genetics. It is believed that there is a genetic predisposition to acquiring MGUS. This belief comes from two key observations regarding race and family history. One study found that black individuals in the United States are twice as likely as white individuals to have MGUS. It has also been found that black individuals residing in Ghana are at a higher risk of developing MGUS, leading to the hypothesis that there is a genetic component. Furthermore, from a familial standpoint, first-degree relatives of patients with MGUS have a two- to three-fold higher risk of developing MGUS than people without any family members with MGUS. Next, there are certain personal characteristics that have been associated with being at higher risk for developing MGUS. The first one we can talk about is age. Certain studies have found that the incidence of MGUS increases from 5% in persons age 70 or older to 7.5% among those 85 or older. It has also been noted that males are at increased risk. Other possible risk factors are obesity, chronic immunosuppression, personal or family history of autoimmune disease, Gaucher disease, or certain environmental exposures, such as pesticides. One such example is from a study looking at US Air Force veterans who were exposed to Agent Orange, and looking at the prevalence of MGUS in these veterans compared to the prevalence of MGUS in veterans who were not exposed to Agent Orange. This study found that 7.1% of veterans exposed to Agent Orange developed MGUS, whereas only 3.1% of veterans who were not exposed to Agent Orange developed it.
2: Hey everyone, my name is Jeremy Smith and I'm a PGY3 here at the University of Utah and planning on talking to you today about what goes into making the diagnosis of MGUS. One thing initially to point out is that the diagnosis of MGUS is usually by happenstance And is usually a byproduct of workup for other things. As a clinician, you will not be sending a workup out for MGUS specifically; hence, the part undetermined significance, or should I say, undetermined clinical significance. There are not specific clinical signs or symptoms that will lead us to a diagnosis of MGUS, but there are, however, some things that should grab our attention for the bigger, more scarier monoclonal gammopathies that are clinically significant, and then this usually prompts the workup that can then lead to the diagnosis of MGUS. So what are some of those signs and symptoms or lab findings we should be keeping an eye out for? Some of the more common symptoms would be something like bone pain, recurrent infections, carpal tunnel syndrome, neuropathy, hefpef, spontaneous tendon ruptures, just to name a few. And again, I want to emphasize that these are potential symptoms of monoclonal gammopathies of clinical significance, something like multiple myeloma, Waldenstrom's, or amyloidosis, and workup should be pursued for these symptoms if we cannot find another more common explanation beforehand. Some lab findings we should keep an eye out for are hypercalcemia, elevated serum protein or a protein gap, elevated ESR, renal insufficiency, anemia, among some others. So let's say, for example, you have a patient you've been seeing. You noted some anemia on their basic labs, and they've had some symptoms like bone pain and recurrent infections. You've done your due diligence and worked up their anemia with iron studies, B12 folate, the usual stuff. You've worked up their bone pain with just some plain films, and you can't really explain their recurrent infections, as they do not seem to be immunocompromised from what you can tell. So you want to take the next steps and start working them up for a potential monoclonal gammopathy. So what do you send? The first step is to order three labs, an SPEP, IFE, and free light chain assay. These three tests will identify about 97% of our patients with some sort of underlying plasma cell disorder. The SPEP will tell you if there is an elevated monoclonal protein. The IFE will tell you what subtype of protein that is, like an IgG, IgM, etc. And the free light chain assay will give you the ratio of your free light chains. So when we get these tests, we'll be looking for a few things. One is the M protein. You'll want to look at how high this value is and then what specific type of monoclonal protein is elevated. You will also want to look at the free light chain ratio and ask, is this an abnormal ratio or not? Then from there, we risk stratify. If you have a non-IGM M protein less than 1.5, with an accompanying normal free light chain ratio, or an IgM protein less than 1.5 just by itself, or an abnormal free light chain ratio without an M-spike at all, these are what we considered, quote-unquote, low-risk features of the monoclonal gammopathy spectrum. And if there is no concern for clinical signs and symptoms, then this gives us the diagnosis of MGUS. So back to our example patient with the unexplained bone pain, recurrent infections, and anemia. Let's say they had these low-risk features, but you've exhausted other workup to explain their clinical symptoms and cannot find an explanation for them. Then this potentially still could be a clinically significant monoclonal gammopathy given their unexplained symptoms, and would want to go down the path of further imaging, heme consults, bone marrow biopsy, and whatnot just to work them up. If you can otherwise explain their clinical symptoms or lab work, and they meet these low-risk risk features criteria then this will fall into the mgus diagnosis if they're in the mgus bucket at the end of the day then you will want to repeat these labs in about six months And and if they're the same or normal and are showing no signs of clinical significance then we can space it out from there and keep an eye on these labs every two to three years or earlier if concerning symptoms arise if you get the if you get values that are abnormal that are more abnormal, such as an M protein that is greater than 1.5, or an abnormal free light chain ratio with elevated M spike, then it doesn't automatically give them a scarier diagnosis, but just means that these are no longer considered LOTUS features, and these patients should then be referred to hematology for further workup and monitoring. So there you have it. Now you know how we come to and make a diagnosis of MGUS. So to summarize... As a workup for potential monoclonal gammopathies of clinical significance, you'll get an SPEP, IFE, and free light chain assay. If they meet criteria of low-risk features, which are if you have a non-IGM-M protein less than 1.5 with an accompanying normal free light chain ratio, or an IGM protein less than 1.5 by itself, or an abnormal free light chain assay without an end spike with no clinical symptoms... That are significant or easily otherwise explainable then this gives you a diagnosis of mgus if you have abnormalities noted on workup but don't meet these low risk criterias then that is the time to refer to hematology for their expertise i hope this helped and didn't just cause more confusion now on to dr mccarran with
3: our treatment section as we mentioned earlier Roughly 1% of patients with MGUS will go on to develop a symptomatic plasma cell or lymphoproliferative disorder. That means that the vast majority of our patients with MGUS will be virtually unaffected, so how important is it really to keep this laboratory diagnosis on the active problem list? First off, there is no known role for chemotherapy in the management of MGUS, and treatment of asymptomatic disease does not appear to affect mortality. Thus, it's important to risk stratify our patients in order to help us decide which patients need closer management. In general, three significant risk factors can be used to help us find the 1% of patients who will eventually progress to malignancy. Number one is a serum protein level greater than 1.5. Unsurprisingly, the higher the serum protein level, the greater the likelihood of malignant progression. A monoclonal protein level greater than 3 indicates that transformation to a severe dyscrasia has likely already occurred. Number two is 9-IgG-MGUS, that is IgA, IgM, or D. These account for about half of patients diagnosed with MGUS, which would automatically bump them into at least the intermediate risk group. And number three is an abnormal serum-free light chain ratio, that's capital lambda, either less than 0.26 or greater than 1.65, indicating excessive production of monoclonal proteins. One study in particular found that these patients are about 3.5 times more likely to progress to malignancy than patients with a normal free light chain ratio. So why should we break down our MGUS patients like this? Well, if a patient has all three risk factors, they have roughly a 58% chance to progress to multiple myeloma or related malignancy over a 20-year period. In patients with two risk factors, that number decreases to 37%, and patients with one risk factor had a 21% chance of disease progression, meaning if we can catch these patients earlier in their presentation, we might have a chance to offer life-changing treatment. Regardless of risk, all patients with MGUS should be evaluated for disease progression six months after diagnosis with a laboratory workup including an SPEP, serum-free light chain, complete blood count, creatinine, and a serum calcium. Several red flags can be identified that would tip our patients into the intermediate or high-risk MGUS category and thus change how we monitor this population moving forward. Clinically, symptoms of bone pain, fatigue, B symptoms, neurological changes, bleeding, lymphadenopathy, or sequela suggestive of amyloidosis would elevate the patient's risk status. Laboratory findings that would also increase a patient's risk include an increase in serum M protein or serum-free light chain greater than 50% from a prior measurement, a free light chain ratio of 100 or more, a serum M protein greater than 3, or a urine M protein of greater than 500 milligrams in a 24-hour period. In any patient with at least one risk factor or one of the red flags we talked about earlier, lifelong annual monitoring of the M protein is recommended as well as trending in annual CBC, creatinine, serum calcium, and free light chain. If you notice a sudden increase in the M protein of more than half a gram per deciliter, or the free light chain increases over 10 grams per deciliter, the follow-up interval should be shortened to 1-3 to months for closer monitoring. If this is starting to get overwhelming, I have good news, because it's recommended that any patient who is not considered low-risk should be referred to a hematologist or oncologist to assist in their care. If your patient doesn't have any of these risk factors and falls into the low-risk category, they can simply be monitored with history and physical exam alone. History can focus on symptoms described above, including fatigue, bone pain, weight loss, or any other sequela of multiple myeloma or amyloid disease. On physical exam, pay close attention to any new lymphadenopathy, organomegaly, neuropathy, or skin changes. Otherwise, these patients only have about a 5% risk of disease progression over a 20-year period. Although monitoring for disease progression and knowing when to refer is important, you should also keep an eye out for complications related to MGUS that don't necessarily correlate with malignancy. In case you are starting to worry we haven't used enough acronyms to maintain our status as a medical podcast, fear not, because MGUS patients with complications related to their diagnosis are now referred to as MGCS- or monoclonal gammopathy of clinical significance. MGRS specifically refers to renal significance, where the monoclonal protein causes kidney damage not related to malignancy. Examples of MGRS include proliferative glomerulonephritis, C3GN, immunoglobulin light chain deposition disease, and AL amyloidosis. Deposition of monoclonal proteins can also lead to peripheral neuropathy. Interestingly enough, up to 5% of unexplained neuropathies can be attributed to this process, The vast majority of these neuropathies are associated with IgM and are usually distal, symmetrical, and rarely affect motor function. Patients with MGUS are also at a higher risk for axial skeleton fractures and blood clots and should have a DEXA scan completed and their vitamin D levels optimized. Special attention should be paid to these risks during the patient interview. Again, any patient with a complication related to their disease takes the U out of MGUS and makes their disease significant consultation with a specialist is thus recommended to talk about therapies against their plasma cell clone. Okay, I hope you got all that. I'm sure memorizing algorithms at 1.5 speed during a podcast comes a second nature by now, but just in case you zoned out for a second or two, you only need to know a few key things to manage your MGUS patients like a pro. Number one, stratify your patients by risk. Low-risk patients only need repeat labs in six months, and then a good history and physical thereafter. Patients with any risk factors or red flags should be followed annually with blood work and referred to a hematologist or oncologist. And number two, patients with any non-malignant complication related to their MGUS should also be referred to a specialist, as therapy directed at their monoclonal protein may help alleviate symptoms and prevent complications. Now go forth and save lives one monoclonal gammopathy at a time. You've upgraded
0: your light chain game into your IGA game. Thank you, John. Now back to our case. I next ordered a serum-free light chain ratio, which revealed a normal ratio of 0.8. 24-hour urine UPEP and urine IFE were also ordered, which revealed an IgG spike concordant with that found in the SPEP and serum IFE. Based on IgG production, monoclonal protein concentration less than 3 in absence of end organ damage based on normal creatinine and anemia on lab work, patient was diagnosed with a resumptive non-IgM MGUS. However, given increased risk in the signoprotein protein level greater than 1.5, patient was referred to hematology and underwent bone marrow biopsy, which revealed 3% plasma cells in the bone marrow. Whole body CT was similarly ordered, which revealed no evidence of lytic bone lesions. Hence, the patient did not meet diagnostic criteria for multiple myeloma or Waldenström macroglobulinemia, and was definitively diagnosed with moderate risk MGUS. CBC, calcium, creatinine, sPep, serum IFE, and serum free light chains were repeated in six months and unchanged. The patient was screened annually thereafter without any significant change in any of these lab values. In conclusion, MGUS is a common hematologic disorder, largely of old age, associated with certain exposures and genetic predispositions, and caused by the accumulation of abnormal plasma cells that have accumulated genetic changes over time. MGUS is typically discovered incidentally on workup of conditions like anemia, bone pain, peripheral neuropathy, and CKD after more common causes of these conditions have been ruled out. It's by definition clinically silent but notable for risk of progression to malignancy, given that MGUS appears to be a necessary precursor state to Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia, multiple myeloma, and light-chain amyloid, and also because the antibody or light-chain components produced by these abnormal plasma cells, even at lower concentrations than would meet the definition for Waldenstrom or multiple myeloma, can putatively cause end-organ damage, leading to... MGCS. When MGCS is diagnosed, eradication of the disease is possible by treatment related to knockdown of the culprit antibody and therefore warrants referral to a specialist for consideration of treatment. Some other important takeaways are that currently it is not recommended to screen for MGUS given a lack of proven benefit in the general population. If discovered by chance, Overall risk of progression to disease is low, but warrants routine lab work to monitor for progression to malignancy. If higher risk features are present, the intervals of this screening will be closer together, depending on protein level and free light chain ratios. Higher risk people with M-spike greater than 1.5 grams per deciliter, or involved to uninvolved serum free light chain ratios greater than 8 need referral to hematology for bone marrow biopsy and skeletal CT imaging to rule out multiple myeloma or Waldenstrom macroglobulinemia. Lower risk people can be monitored with history and physical alone or with lab monitoring every two to three years, depending on the guideline that you're looking at. MGUS itself does not warrant treatment. Only when it progresses to MGCS or a more advanced plasma cell dyscrasia would treatment be considered. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Primary Care Anywhere, and I hope that you're able to join us next time.